We have a very strong content warning for today's episode. There will be very sensitive topics discussed today, including sexual abuse and violence and strong language. Please listen with care. Here's Your Red Flag is intended for mature audiences only. Please listen with care. Lisa and I created this podcast with the goal of enlightening each other and our listeners in prevailing over narcissistic and toxic people and relationships. Our mission with this podcast is to help survivors of toxic relationships recognize red flags and areas of personal growth while equipping them with strategies for ultimate and lasting mental health across all relationships. This is a podcast of self-discovery. We'll be talking about personal freedom, safety, security, and strength while embracing our inner voice, recognizing and honoring our gut instinct, accepting imperfection, showing grace to ourselves, and starting anew. Many of our episodes will include topics such as psychological, emotional, and physical abuse, and detailed narcissistic and toxic behaviors. Our podcast is for educational and self-improvement purposes only and should not be viewed as a replacement for therapy. We are not professional therapists. If you are in need of professional help, please contact the appropriate authorities and see our show notes for helpful suggestions. Some names and identities have been changed for anonymity purposes. The opinions expressed by the guests on the show are their own and do not necessarily represent Lisa's or my views. You can find additional information about this podcast in the show notes, as well as on our website, heresyourredflag.com. And we are also on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. See our show notes for the links. If you have a red flag story you'd like to share for an upcoming episode, we would love to hear from you. You can reach us by email at heresyourredflag at gmail.com or private message us through Here's Your Red Flag Facebook or Instagram pages. Thanks, y'all. I flew up to the mirror Well, there was nothing that I seen You were crying But a Hello, welcome back to Here's Your Red Flag. Hi, Lisa. Hi, Tony. Today, we continue our conversation with Lily. Last time, she talked about how her childhood hardwired her to attract her abusive husband. In this episode, Lily will go into more detail about the relationship. It is truly an example of an abusive relationship, and we will see the classic narcissistic abuse cycle laid out. The love bombing, devalue, discard, and hoovering. Lily will detail her former husband's love bombing and grooming of her, what hooked her, and the many red flags she noticed and pushed aside. She will further talk about his devaluing and discarding of her in the relationship. Hi, Lily. Welcome back to Here's Your Red Flag. Hi, it's a pleasure to be here. We're so happy that you're back. And we know that you have so much to teach our audience because of your generosity and wanting to talk about what you've gone through and how you prevailed, most importantly. Yes, definitely. Um, I'd love to share my story. We appreciate that. Yeah, we really do. You know, highlighting examples of relationships that had red flags that were ignored and then prevailing through those is kind of our mission in a nutshell. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Lily, what was the beginning of the relationship like with your ex-husband, Tim? What was attractive and what hooked you? I believe I said it when we talked previously, we met on social media on MySpace at the time, because at that time, like that was the big thing, MySpace. And we both had these dogs and, you know, we were both really into our dogs. I had my bulldog Hank and he had Luigi and, you know, we were kind of flirting on social media and we had decided to meet up at a dog park. Honestly, the first, what attracted me to him was he had, it was really so surface level I mean, there was nothing deep that attracted me to him. At the time, I found him to be just physically attractive. And I was just, I did not know myself at all. I just wanted someone to find me attractive, any kind of attractive. So when I noticed that he was really into me um, at that dog park and he was giving me attention, that's what attracted me to him. But it wasn't anything that I was taking into consideration what my needs were 
in, you know, in a person, in a friend, in a boyfriend. I liked the fact that he was a little bit tough, kind of rough around the edges. I'll be honest. I don't know what what it was, what it is that I find attractive about that. But but that was the big one that he was kind of rough around the edges and ugh, so embarrassing to even say that he had like tattoos, just like a couple of tattoos. And, you know, he asked for my number. There wasn't really, personality wise, I felt like you know, looking back, it wasn't anything that really clicked with us intellectually. It was just the way I felt when he clearly um, showed attraction towards me. And I like that. I That was what I needed, was someone to be attracted to me. You know, he was cute. He had these tattoos. He was rough around the edges. And he had a bit of a chip on his shoulder. So I like that. And I still, I still to this day don't know why. But I'm looking into that looking into myself and figuring out why I'm attracted to that kind of person. Mm-hmm. What what I heard you say several times was not maybe these words, but alluding to the fact that you didn't really know yourself and you're even struggling, you know, through this to even yes. say what yes. it was. Yes. And so maybe you're drawn to people who do know who they are or they portray that, right? So he portrayed this certain confidence or strength of, yeah, and it takes a certain type of person to get a tattoo that's going to be visible. And yeah, this is who I am, right? He kind of dominates the space, so to speak. And that can be very attractive for yeah. a young woman who maybe lacks self-esteem or lacks any sort of direction or sense of values. That can be very uh, attractive. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. I was to all of that. And it's also human nature to... So I, I don't want listeners or you to add shame on top of shame for liking the feeling of being attractive. You know, I think that's instinctual in human beings, whether male or female, right? We want to be attractive and we want people to like us and we want to feel special. So yes. those are all healthy, normal, typical, I'll say, it motivations. It almost me that that was my need. Mm-hmm. You know, if I'm going to be perfectly vulnerable, it almost consumed me. I mm-hmm. needed it. And this is the first time I'm saying it. I needed to be found attractive. I needed to have what it takes to be a wife, what it takes to be special. And I'm, you know, I'm still doing some work and therapy on that. But that was something that I really, really craved more than anything. You know, success, whatever education, that was something that I really, really needed at that time. Yeah, and that's, you know, that's what we refer to an external locus of control where you're seeking validation from the outside world because you haven't yet found mm-hmm. your own value and your yeah. own worth. And so you're looking for it from other people. And yeah. so that can be a real move toward maturity and finding out who we are in those concrete feet I alluded yeah. to earlier. Yeah, yeah come to think about it it was just so so superficial i can't even think of words that attracted me mm. i think that's relatable honestly and again i'm jumping ahead but we're going to work together on your values i know you're going to start some values work and then some heart mm-hmm. magnet work and people didn't have you know we didn't have that back then when we were falling into these pitfalls with these narcissistic abusive people and, and- i do Um, Just briefly want to mention backtracking, because I think a lot of people, especially, you know, of a certain generation, mental health was just kind of, you know, a faux pas. It was just not really looked at. It was kind of set aside. And Mm -hmm. I'm hoping now, even anybody with kids, you know, that they start on that mental health journey so early, because for me, it was just kind of like, don't worry, like you'll get over, just get over it, get over it. You're fine. Get over it. Ignore it. You know, so I think it's imperative that kids, people know themselves at a really early age. Just, Mm -hmm. yeah. Absolutely. Very important work for people to do. And, you know, Mm -hmm. prior generations to ours, I'm saying we're kind of middle-aged people, which sounds so weird, but my parents' generation, if they weren't in that psychology mode, Mm -hmm. they did not see the importance of mental health. And There was a shame, I think, associated even mm -hmm. just the mental, mm-hmm. you know, um, emotional, you know, so I really, really try to be quote unquote normal all my life. 
but I knew, I mean, I couldn't pinpoint it. And I just later found, you know, I just later accepted the fact that, you know, I had mental health, emotional health issues, just like everybody else, you know, um, maybe I was more in tune with it, but I was really taught to sort of just hide it, push it aside. Mm-hmm. And I think that's been the culture. And really, in the last maybe, you know, 20 or so years, it's grown in importance for people to get mental health. Yes. I know we tend to like hop on the bandwagon against the internet and social media. Maybe this is another con about those two things. But, you know, our parents' generation didn't have the internet or social media. And so the only opinions they were exposed to were maybe from the nightly news or the radio or the newspaper, right? That can be easily closed, thrown away, turned off. Yes. And they worked. They worked hard. They worked at jobs. Like they left home. They didn't have a phone. And so fast forward to today, all of those things, internet can be a wealth of information and very positive. And I think in a lot of ways it's exposed and helped bring to light mental health issues. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, with social media and the internet, we have access to unlimited numbers of opinions. Mm -hmm. And those, if we have a weakened sense of self, can really cause us to doubt ourselves. And I know that certainly is the case for me. It took me a well until just a couple of years ago to even use social media personally. So I just think that maybe can help us understand to another layer to all of this is just the access that we have, the comparisons that we make against other people. You know, we compare ourselves to other people on social media and that just adds another element to that mental health and insecurity possibly. Yeah. We say, well, our mental health in the past but they also didn't have access, the access and the competition for attention that we face every day at the tip of our fingers. We can yeah. watch entire movies on an airplane. I mean, whoever thought of that, you know? <laughs> so I just think we need to maybe guard ourselves a little bit from that. And I'm kind of all for going back to a more simple life. <laughs> Me too. I 1000% agree. Yeah. And there's also the dangers of, to be perfectly candid, I mean, I, I was myself, you know, on, on all of my profiles and myself, I'd be, but you can create yourself to be more intellectual on the internet. If someone asks you a question, you can easily just Google the answer, right? You can create a whole new life that makes you look so much more attractive. And I think that that is one of the downfalls of the internet is you're competing with all of these people. If you're insecure, you're competing with all of these people who you think have certain kinds of lives or have certain kinds of looks, but none of it is real. I definitely do yearn for um, what it was like when I was younger. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, everyone's kind of living a lie in a sense. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, that was a long segue, my friend. I'm sorry. <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> I wish I could just come over and hang out with you guys. You guys are so awesome. <laughs> Come visit us in Texas. I know. Or we could fly out there. Oh, we could totally oh, do that. In <laughs> wineries. I'm always down to go to California. All the things. Yeah. Oh, yes. Okay. Yeah. Let's talk uh, red flags. So red flags, Lily, we, as you know, are called Here's Your Red Flag. And yes. that is, as we have come to discover, red flags are everywhere. And I know for me, and Lisa can probably attest to this as well, we're very good at not noticing those red flags that are popping up all over the place when we're predisposed to attract toxic people. So what were some red flags that you want to talk about that you noticed, didn't notice, ignored, that sort of thing? Um, well, from the very beginning, I did a huge red flag now that I would tell my younger self or anybody giving anybody advice is he was just so infatuated with me and was just really, really supposedly taken by me and kept saying how amazing I was. But it was really early on. I'm talking maybe even the next day. And how does one come to that conclusion about anybody else, you know, thinking back that you're this amazing, wonderful person. And for somebody that is so deeply insecure, of course, that was on the back of my mind. Like, he doesn't know me, but 
wait a minute, maybe I am, you know, and it feels good to hear those things and to know that there's actually even one person that is validating your worth, even if you don't know the person. So a red flag was really him pursuing me immediately, immediately after meeting. So that's one. I'm going to fast forward here. So like I said, we had met through our animals. We both had dogs. And, you know, when you have a pet, you're responsible for them, right? Like my dog, my animals still, my children, my dog now. You're responsible for their upkeep, their daily checkups, uh, my dog's flea medication, that kind of thing. And I noticed that although, yeah... Luigi, he was a really happy-go-lucky guy. He loved him, obviously. But, I mean, he never... I noticed that he was just kind of unkempt. I remember even going to his place at the time and saying, oh my gosh, you know, maybe maybe we should, you know, try this shampoo because he was, so, you know, he had little, like, itchy red spots. So that's a red flag, was that he claimed to really love this animal. This animal was his world via social media, right? Portraying it. But it didn't seem like he was really the well taken care of. That for me, that definitely resonated with me in my mind. But I just pushed it back. I just pushed it back because he did take him to the dog parks. The dog clearly loved him. And so I just, I completely ignored it because I wanted to be desired so much. That was a red flag. A few months later, my birthday was coming up. He knew it was my birthday. This was a big one. My parents even said, no, no, that can't be it. So what happened was it was my my birthday was coming up. And I remember the day before, I'm such a, I still feel like such a fool, you know, to even, to even consider this because the way he spoke to me was that I was just this goddess. I mean, I was on this pedestal, you know, and he calls me and he said, oh my gosh, I'm so upset my wallet got stolen and I had this whole thing planned for you. And hearing that, if some, if a friend had told me that, if a family member had told me that, I would have told, you know, BS immediately. And, you know, I just remember wanting to be the perfect girlfriend, the perfect, to have the perfect answer to, you know, to be, I almost wanted to be looked upon as this saint because I needed that affirmation that I was a good person. So I said, don't worry about it. That's okay. It doesn't matter. And I remember my parents asking me, what are you guys going to do for your birthday? And I said, well, you know, his wallet got stolen. He had this whole thing planned. <laughs> and they were like, no. But yeah, I, I, be I believe that I completely, 1000%, like ate that up with a spoon. I completely believed it. And he said he would make it up, which he never did, of course. And then ultimately I had forgotten also, there was a time when I had gone out to lunch with some college friends. Uh, it was about an hour away. So I had taken my keys, thinking I had taken just my keys, but I accidentally took his keys. It was a Saturday and there was really nothing happening, but I had taken both sets of keys and I remember just being so nervous and looking at these keys. You know, at the time, I didn't even realize I was nervous, but now, looking back, I knew that my heart was palpitating, looking like I had accidentally taken these keys. And so I called him and I said, I'm apologizing profusely, over apologizing. And that's still something that I'm working on because uh, that I do that a lot, uh, just, just across the board with everybody. So I, I said, I took your keys. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'll make it. You know, I remember his reaction was just like, okay, yeah, that's fine. Whatever. Mm -hmm. And then he just, he just hung up the phone. And instead of me placing value in myself and thinking, how could somebody talk to me like that? I remember thinking, gosh, I'm such an idiot. How could I have done this? You know? And I kept thinking of all these ways to apologize, but he held on to that grudge for quite a while with the keys. So it started kind of early on with little things like that. Another time, so the dog threw up on his head a little bit. And instead of saying, are you okay? You know, because it's an animal. He threw the pillow like really, really hard across the wall and he punched something. I think it was maybe the mattress. I really don't, I was hazy on it. And I remember being upset and um, kind of walking out. It was kind of a blur after that and um, and going home. And I remember him calling me, just, just trying to apologize, calling me all the time. And again, this saintly person that I wanted to be, I wanted to be looked at as this, you know, this really understanding person. I said, and I shouldn't have done this. I said, listen, I know you have a lot of anxiety. I just wanted to let you know that it was okay. And I didn't want you to worry about it while you were working. Ugh. 
I mean, oh my gosh, like I cringe when I think about how pathetic that was. But, you know, that was another one was was little things like that. Oh, and he blamed the dog. He said, really, really, you, um, this little shithead, you know, um, out of out of all the places he could have thrown up, he picks my head. He did that on purpose, you know, and I totally, totally, completely ignored it. A thousand percent ignored it. So there were things like that. And him just wanting to introduce me to his parents right away, you know, before he even really got to know me. I mean, those were all major, major red flags in hindsight, come to think about it. Also, road rage. Intense, intense, extreme road rage. I mean, just um, unreasonable road rage. And he had me convinced that it was everybody else's fault on the road and that nobody could drive. Nobody knew how to drive. That was a big one. Yeah. Those are some of the main ones that I remember off the top of my head. So, uh, you know, a big red flag category would be, you know, trouble managing his emotions, specifically yeah. anger. Mm-hmm. Anyone who reacts aggressively toward animals should not be in our lives. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then the speed at which he wanted to excel or accelerate the relationship. Ex- exactly. You know. yeah. Exactly. You know, meeting the parents, that's a big thing. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and just the showering of attention and affection, which I'm sure he could sense that you were craving and you you responded positively to that. So he knew mm-hmm. to give you more of that. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And then when you excused away and again, I'm not pointing the finger at all. Like I <laughs> mm-hmm. we've walked in the same shoes. The more excuses we offer and the more we brush over their bad behavior, their abusive behavior, mm-hmm. we teach them that it's okay and they can yeah. do it more and more. And I, in my own experience, I felt like if I go back in time, each act of abuse was kind of a test. And if I excused it or was okay with it, then the next time it would be a little more and a little more yeah. yes. and a little more. And then even when it turned physical, in my own mind, I was making excuses for him like, oh, he was just super, super drunk. Or maybe Mm -hmm. I was standing in the way when he pulled the attic door on my head. Or maybe I was in the way when he slammed the door on my arm. Or I don't know what excuse I made when he grabbed my shirt. But, Mm -hmm. you know, I just think we excuse so much in an effort to secure that little crumb of affection and, and it, it uh, all points back to our own lack of self-worth yeah and i just mm-hmm. feel so sorry for that little me me too <laughs> that me too. old me you know yeah and you know nothing really i'm going back to some more red flags guys but um good 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 matched up nothing really matched up to what he would say to me verbally um it didn't match with his actions but I needed that verbal confirmation. Another huge red flag was jealousy and jealousy early on. I felt like I was slowly looking back. I didn't realize it then, but I felt like I was slowly being taken away from, you know, everything I love doing from my friends. I remember my one of my best friends in the city, we were all getting together because, uh, you know, some of us had moved to New York, I think. Anyway, we were all getting together for for just, just, just to be together in the city. And I remember telling Tim, I said, we're just going to get together. It's just going to be us. Like nothing. Because I always, by the way, always let him do his own thing. And um, he always made excuses that he was going out with his friends. But I was that I was confident in. I felt confident in the fact that no one else would be able to compare to me. But I think it's because of all of the verbal confirmations that he had just put into my mind. I remember him saying, oh, is, is whatever, is your ex going to be there? Yada, yada, yada. And I said, no, I don't think so. It's so blurry, but he got so, so jealous. He got really upset. He insisted on going. And I remember him just, you know, just ignoring me, ignoring me when I got back home. It was just complete silent treatment. He was so, so mad. And I didn't know what I did. And I, I ended up apologizing, saying, I'm so sorry. You should have came with us. You're right. You're right. You're important. I'm I always was the one that ended up apologizing somehow. It was always my fault. I always felt guilt, 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 constant guilt. So, yeah. I did want to say 
the getting jealous thing. Because when that happened, I remember we were already, Hunter was already born. He was a few months old. I think a lot of younger women think that when a man that they have a child with, they they will instantly turn into this different person and become a father. Mm. And they just never change. Their personalities never change. So yeah, I had had just Hunter. He was not even one years old yet. That was when I had decided to go out with some of my friends, you know, because Tim's parents were staying with us. They often stayed with us. They stayed with us a lot, especially his mother. But Tim's parents um, were staying with us and they said, yeah, please go, you know. So I went and that was when I got the silent treatment. I remember and his parents gave me the silent treatment and he even started crying. That's another major red flag that I think a lot of people take as genuine is that a lot of narcissists can really, really and truly cry on cue. They're very good at that. Whereas someone like me, I think ultimately towards the end of the relationship, I had no more tears to shed. I was completely and totally numb. But he was so good at crying and I never understood why. And he kept telling me, you don't love me, yada, yada, yada. I never see you cry, but I just couldn't. I, I couldn't. I, I was just so um, numb and so protected. I had this wall and I couldn't I remember just at the time being unable to display any kind of emotion. And he, the, so that was his guilt trip. That was his go-to, you know, that was his MO was crying. So he cried and he said, why can't you just let me be hurt? You hurt me so deeply because you went out with your friends. So, of course, every single time he did that, I had to try to comfort him and tell him that everything was okay. So I'm going to fast forward here. I think this is a common theme amongst narcissism is that everyone else is an a-hole except for them. It wasn't their fault. And this happened. He had, you know, jumped from job to job. And I really, in the beginning, believed it. Like, how could these people be treating him like this? He was a mechanic and he was always fighting with somebody. He was always fighting with his boss because they were treating him like shit, yada, yada. So I never doubted him in the beginning because going back to what I had stated in the previous interview, he looked like such an idiot you know, to to everybody, if this is what I chose as a husband, and I could never look like that. So I had to convince myself that he was a decent human and everybody else was out to get him. So I think that's a common red flag among the narcissist is that they just don't get along with anybody, but it's never their fault ever. You know, they're the innocent victim. They're the innocent party. And in every situation, you know, they have never accepted fault. Do you want so, to tell us a little bit about his relationship with his mother? And maybe that's how it kind of turned him into uh, that? You. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. So his mom, here's the thing. So growing up, supposedly, from what I understood, was that he grew up in a very, very strict, very biblical household. He always complained about that. He always complained that everything was about the Bible. And maybe they're not to blame, but like I was saying, previous generations, they really didn't consider, uh, you know, mental health. But he did have an older brother with autism, but the parents just kind of swept it under the rug. And, you know, when that's not addressed, I mean, a poor kid, you know, like, like I'm a SPED teacher. So a poor kid can go crazy because they're trying to communicate and it's just being swept under the rug saying, read the Bible, read the Bible, read the Bible. So this kid early on, he became really violent and he was the eldest of three brothers. He became extremely violent towards his family. Trigger warning, guys. I had heard of um, instances where, you know, he had thrown knives. So autism spectrum is now a common diagnosis. So at the time, what he told me was when he was growing up with his family, they were very, very biblical. Actually, as a matter of fact, his mom would refer to them as blue bloods, like extremely biblical. And I remember even thinking, gosh, are they even going to like me because I'm Asian? I remember specifically thinking that, but you know, they were, they were nice. He had an older brother, um, so they had taken him to, you know, um, I think it was uh, UCLA to get tested. They said that it was mental retardation. They had no idea what it was. And so, but he was, you know, intellectual. He could carry a conversation, but it was just kind of like an obsession over certain things. And there always had to be a constant schedule. The schedule had to be intact in place and the, the food had to be exactly as it was. No weird textures, that kind of thing. Instead of addressing it and getting real professional help, they would send the kids to this church counselor, okay? Like this youth group thing. 
and trigger warning. At one point, I remember he stated that his oldest brother, you know, he liked to listen to a certain kind of music. I don't know, but it was like an innocent music. Maybe it had some cuss words in it, but they had them bring all of their CDs to the church and they burned them all. So it was that kind of intense biblical themed counseling environment. So his older brother, Roger, you know, could not understand that. He just didn't know what was happening. So, you know, so of course he would lash out at home. Uh, His parents always just said, you know, read the Bible. No, no, that's Jesus wouldn't do that kind of thing. So he would throw knives at people. He would choke his his youngest brother, Philip. And so what Tim would always say was he has a chip on his shoulder or he has to be tough because he had grown up his entire life trying to protect his younger brother and his family from the constant abuse, the physical abuse. And what he had told me was that instead of being praised or instead of being appreciated, he had taken sort of all of the blame and um, they he was looked upon as the quote unquote black sheep of the family. Another trigger warning, he stated that because they were so biblical at one point, he finally wanted to do something for himself. And he had went to see his favorite band, but his family did not believe in listening to certain kinds of music. He said he went home and then he woke up to, this is a major trigger warning, okay? He said he woke up to his father hitting him with a PVC pipe over and over again on his back. Okay, that I that part I wholeheartedly believe, you know? And he said that his mother was always slap happy. So if there was some, it was always his mother. That was the one time he said his dad got physical. But he said his mother was slap happy. So if there was something that she didn't appreciate, she would just slap him, hit him in the head, which is why he claims that anything touching his head, you know, is such a trigger for him. So what happened during that time was he was, I think, an upperclassman in high school. The teacher saw blood coming out of the back of his shirt and they sent him home. He had called Child Protective Services and the story he had told me and the story that his parents had ultimately told me was that the cops took the parents' side somehow. And I, I couldn't wrap my mind around that. I didn't. So so that's still hazy. And maybe, you know, um, there was a lot of um, untruths to that story. But I do see, I do believe that his mother especially contributed to his personality a thousand percent. And any time I remember she was over at the house so much. And I remember him saying, well, your parents live up the street, which is true. My parents uh, did live up the street. He has said, well, your mom lives up the street. Why can't my mom visit every month? And I'm like, okay, cool. But the thing is, my parents were so afraid. They were walking on eggshells too. They never would come see me when he was here. They made sure that it was 1000% privacy. Never, never, never hands off ever, you know? And the ironic thing about that is that whenever we would get into fights and, you know, as time progressed, the fights got worse, especially when the children were involved, he would always contact my family and he would say, to my mom, uh, Marie, you need to pick up your daughter. She's having a psychological meltdown, right? He at one point convinced my brother that I was going crazy. And you know what? I think that because of how deeply insecure I was in the past, I mean, they all knew that I admitted to that. I think that that was very easy to believe that I was having a meltdown, that I was going crazy. And I believed it. I thought it was me every single time I would end up apologizing, you know, and trigger warning, um, you know, moving on to just sexually, I was just, I was so disgusted with the way he touched me. I didn't want him. Like I had said, I had tried to wear rags. I mean, the most disgusting clothes. I, I even tried to not, I'm so ashamed of this, but I even tried to like not smell good around him because I was, I was so afraid he would touch me. And so I would, I remember it was so disgusting. Like I would, sorry, I'm sorry. I wasn't expecting that. Um, I remember like, I would try to sit down on the couch. I'm sorry, you guys. I wasn't expecting to cry. It's okay. We're with you. Sorry. Um, it's probably why I talk fast because I just didn't want to get emotional. I haven't gotten emotional about this in a long time. But I think people need to know this. You know, just because you're married doesn't mean that it's not right, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm sorry, Rhea. I'm sorry. Sorry, Lily. Yeah, I'm sorry. Um, I'm sorry. It's okay. 
Okay, okay. Yeah, I'm so sorry. I would sit on the couch and he would try to like finger me no matter no matter what. I mean, it was just disgusting. I just wanted to get it over with, you know, and I remember telling my mom because it was just so horrible, but I remember feeling relief at the end because he would sleep for hours. And uh, nobody understood this. Like, oh, it's just sex. Just do it. It's your husband, you know? Like, be sexy around him. But they never understood. Like, he would always just, like, grab. Like, he wouldn't hold. Like, it was just, like, my private parts. And it was disgusting. And, um, um, I just remember thinking, okay, uh, my mom and I would have a code. She would say, maybe you can do it for five. Like, she didn't know how bad it was, you know? And I couldn't explain. I was too ashamed to explain. <laughs> Um, so, so I would just say, okay, five minutes, and I would just, I would just thank God, like, that would be over, and I remember just planning it in my head, you know, okay, if I can just do five minutes on maybe Wednesday, it'll be okay, but I remember him saying, you know, you're my, you're my fucking wife, and you, you should want to have sex with me, you should love it when I grab your ass, and I thought that, no, you're right, maybe, uh, like, like, I'm desiring you, you know, um, and I'm like, you're right, what the fuck is wrong with me? I remember thinking that it was premenopausal, which I was so young, I was really convinced that it was me at the time. I remember, he would talk for hours on the phone with his mother, his mother would enable him. And I remember thinking, okay, so she's a good Christian woman, she well, back up, like when I was growing up and I had gone to Catholic school, I didn't know any difference between different kinds of Christians. I was like, I was just told to be a good human, you know, and we rarely went to church, but I just kind of followed, you know, being a good person. I really didn't dive deep into the whole biblical stuff. And not that there's anything wrong with that. But I just thought, okay, she's claiming to be a Christian. She has to be a good person. And I remember reaching out to his mom, begging her, saying, please, it's getting so bad. You're the only one who can get through to him. He's, you know, he's verbally abusive. The children are afraid. And I will never forget this conversation because it was on the phone. And she said, okay, I'll try. I'll call him. And she said, and that's another thing that she would always call him from the, was Timmy, my little Timmy. Oh my gosh, my little sweet little Timmy. Oh my goodness. You know, that kind of thing. Timmy, is it true that you're, you know, you're treating her this way? And his answer was, mom, when you're deprived of food, you get hungry, you know, so you, you, you want to ravage your food. And I remember her on the other line saying, I totally understand Timmy. I totally get that. There was that element of her always just kind of agreeing, her being convinced that I was crazy, that my parents had control of me because they were essentially supporting us financially because he kept going from job to job. Another red flag. Even early on, if, if a woman is in a relationship, you know, I, I just remember him not wanting me to work. I wanted to find work and he did not want me working. And, and then I remember thinking, well, how are we going to afford life? And he was just like, I'm working really hard so that you can stay home with the kids so that you don't have the same experience that I did with my parents who left me alone with my quote unquote insane brother. And then I'm like, okay, but you know, my, my mom can help out. And I remember him saying, if you get a job, I will quit my job and I will be with the kids full time. And I couldn't, I could not let that happen. He's never, he was high all the time. He, Tim was never not high on marijuana. And I know that that's legal nowadays, but he couldn't not be high. You know, he would spend $400 a month on pot and I couldn't risk him watching the children while he was high. But I was also afraid that when he would run out of his pot, he would turn psychotic, literally psychotic. So it, it was just a lot of that. And I remember reaching out to his family. I don't know why I reached out to his family so much, but it was because she would just, the mother kept infringing on our lives so much that I thought maybe they could help. And I remember meeting his, his dad, who was nice, who seemed really kind, but he was just kind of passive behind the scenes. The mother had total control of everything. And I remember meeting his mom, his grandparents, his mom's parents, and they were just really, really kind. His his uh, grandfather was a, a veteran for um, Vietnam. He was a, like a, a Air Force captain. And I really highly respected them. And they seemed like they had 
this really solid marriage, you know, and I'm thinking maybe if the men in the family just knew how bad, and his brother was also a Marine. And I just, you know, I thought, I still think that they somewhat have values. Well, his grandfather, but his brother is a whole different thing, but they were the Marines. And I thought if they, if they could just get wind of this, maybe they could talk some sense into him. That you respected them. I and did. If they could, they, you, you knew that they had values. So maybe they could talk yeah. some sense into him. Yes, sense. yes, yes. And that never happened because the mom always said, I don't think that this is appropriate. Nothing could be talked about. And I remember his dad specifically saying, things kind of just work out over time, over time. And even when his brother, his older brother was, I mean, they had to call the cops a couple of times when he was getting really, really violent and throwing things. The rest of the family never knew about this. So it was all hush hush. And I was just desperately screaming out for help. And I was, I would be afraid to even call the cops, even though um, things eventually got really bad um, with the property damage because I didn't want to scare the children. I wanted help, but I didn't want to scare the children. And I was getting like a, a regular physical checkup, you know, I remember the doctor saying, um, and we asked all of our clients to fill this out. And it's, you know, it's how things are going on in the household. Like basically, essentially, are you being abused? And I remember thinking, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, this is my chance. This is my chance. But I still made excuses for it. I filled it out and it said, do you feel safe in the household? And I checked sometimes. And it said, um, do you feel like you're in danger? And I checked sometimes. And I remember feeling guilty about that. Like I was going to get in trouble. But I said, you know, I just wanted to, I said, I just wanted to fill this out as candidly as possible. It happens sometimes, but is there anybody I could talk to? Because um, uh, there are some things that are happening in my home that I'm kind of scared about. Is there anyone I can talk to? So they sent me to talk to somebody and she diligently typed out what I was saying, but nothing ever came of it, you know? And what's really hard about being abused is that, especially with a narcissist, is that right afterwards they apologize so much and they act like this saint that you begin to think that you had taken the things out of context or that, um, you know, you were maybe just overly sensitive at the time. And so it was this cycle of terror, sheer, sheer terror. That was the word that I would use. And then moments of, you know, I apologize, you're the greatest person on earth. So, you know, I was always in um, a fight or flight mode and I just kept thinking it would get better. And I kept thinking about the kids and not traumatizing them. But I mean, I eventually knew that I had to leave there's so many elements to it. I'm just trying to recall, you know, the important things for people to remember about narcissism is that they will apologize and apologize and apologize. And then they will go back. They won't forget anything ever. They will go back and they will blame you for something that has happened in the past, you know, for women to be warned about. I should probably say everybody, not just women, but you know, if you're in a long-term relationship, it's not going to change. It's always going to be a cycle. So that's something. Yeah. So how or at what point did you decide to end the relationship or or did he? No, it was always me. He would never end a relationship. That would make him look bad that he failed at something. There were many times, you know, where, like I said, you know, at one point it became that I was just so numb that no matter what he would say, I I felt nothing. I I really felt nothing. I, I don't know how to explain it, but. I had no emotion. I felt nothing. And um, I remember one incident, although I'm sure there were many, that we were sitting on the couch outside. I just remember just parts of the conversation, but I remember sitting there and saying, I want a divorce. And he said, are you out of your fucking mind? Are you PMSing? And I said, no, I want a divorce. I I really just want to leave. Are you okay? Have a seat. And he would look at me and he would say, look at you. You're not okay. Whoa, 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 whoa. Even though I would just be sitting here, he would have this whole gaslighting thing of me looking a certain way or doing something crazy if I would move my arm he would say oh look at that like what's wrong with you are you you know what do I need to call your mom you know that kind of thing and he had me convinced for a for a while that it was me he really did I just remembered I remember uh back to social media and how toxic it can be I had and I think This is an important element because I think in hindsight, this is something that I yearn for that I never got back. But 
I had this boyfriend in high school and he really did love me. Like that was the only kind of real, true, raw, like pure, the pure kind of love that I, I have ever experienced. Of course it was high school. So we broke up, you know, but he was, I mean, we were each other's first loves definitely for sure. He reached out to me on Facebook at the time I was just craving. I had nothing. I was this empty shell. He had gotten married and he said that he doesn't know why he got married, whatever, all this, all this kind of stuff. Right. So we started flirting with nothing, nothing transpired. It was, it was purely kind of like an emotional connection. Although I know that's bad too. But I think that was something, something in me changed at that time. I know it was shortly after that time. And I knew that I wanted more um, in somebody, in a relationship. I knew that I had missed that feeling. You know, I couldn't live the rest of my life as a shell. I mean, and and then we ended things and it was literally nothing. We We would just talk on the phone sometimes. But I think that that was when I knew that I needed more from my life. I deserved more, you know. And that was when I had said, I want to get a divorce not for anything, not that I was going to find another relationship. I just wanted out, you know, I just wanted peace and and just a little bit of happiness because I'm settling for the sake of my children, that they would have something stable. And I was settling just for the sake of them never having to be away from me. That was a big one. I remember my mom even saying, and it's not her fault because she loves those kids, but I remember her saying, Okay, if you do this, just know that there will be times I don't know if you can live without seeing your kids. And I couldn't, of course. Um, so that's why I held on for so long. But yeah, that's the, I, I remember saying that. And I remember him always twisting it and saying that I was going crazy um, every time I said I wanted to leave. Yeah, my my second ex told his family that we were divorcing because I had PMS. <laughs> yeah, they would he would blame it on my hormones, too. Yeah. And he would research stuff on Google and say, this, this matches, this is you, you're not okay. Mm -hmm. And you could be just sitting there. This is a big one is the gaslighting. You could just be sitting there minding your own business. And if you would be, they would be in a mood and I'm sure a lot of people have gone through this. They would say, I can see, I can see you thinking, you're thinking about something. You're not, you're not okay. You see, you're doing it. So that, that kind of thing Mm -hmm. is a big one. So if you're in a relationship and that happens, that's not going to change. I really hope that somebody hears that and and, and something clicks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I remember number two doing that exact thing, actually. I hadn't thought of it until you just said it. But he his big question to me was always, what's in your head? And mm-hmm. I found that so attractive mm-hmm. initially, like, oh, he wants to know my thoughts. But he would ask it at such random times that mm-hmm. I would literally say there is nothing in my head and then he would punish me and say you're thinking about something so when you you know when you figure it out let me know and so I would just sit there dumbfounded like what am I thinking about and I was like I'm not thinking about anything (laughs) and yeah yeah, the gaslighting is just gosh they want you to think that you're crazy and Uh like literally you have lost your mind you have lost your effing mind you know, you are not okay. You need help. You need help. And of course they, they do it in the guise of I'm trying to help you, mm-hmm. you know? And of course they try to get anybody that will listen. That's part of your, you know, your comfort, your family, your friends, they will have them fully convinced. I mean, no matter what, I mean, of course my family had my back. My friends had my back always, but they were convinced for a time. And, and that's what's scary is that's what's scary is that they were convinced because he would approach it in a way of, I want to help her, you know, I'm here to help her and she's suffering emotionally, mentally, and I'm here to help her and she's not letting me help her, that kind of thing. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. Always the victim, but always the savior at the same time. Yes. Just yes. And it sounds like he wanted to live in your head, you know? Oh, yeah. The, and, and same with Lisa talking about number two, imposing on you, you know, I, I need to know what is going on in your head. And so if you're not going to tell me, I'm going to tell you what it is. Exactly. Exactly. And it was always, you know, I want them to know that they're crazy, you know, mm-hmm. little, like, you know, little seeds planted. You are crazy. You're crazy. You're crazy. So, so ultimately, you know, and, and here's another thing is that what is that technical term called where you react because they're like taunting you? Oh my gosh. 
I forget the technical term, but so you would react and you would say, what are you talking about? And then they would say, there, there's the crazy, you know, that kind of, I forget the technical term for that. And so you would react. Like projection. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Out of anger. And I would say, what are you talking about? Please just leave me alone. You know? And, you know, a narcissist will always say, that's it. I told you, I told you, excuse me. You know, that's a big one, man, the gaslighting. And I didn't even know what was happening. I was so confused. I didn't even really know what gaslighting was um, psychologically. It's very powerful. Yes. It is a big one. And then also you, you know, mentioned friends and family, you know, so many people are not aware of this, the cycle of abuse, narcissistic cycle of abuse, which is um, a little different. And to try to explain it, you know, I mean, you're almost spinning your wheels with people mm-hmm. and it's, it is so frustrating. You, you do feel just, it's even further isolating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, as an empath, I think for a lot of women, they are, you know, more emotional, their emotions are a little more heightened. So it's really easy to convince their tribe that they are having these psychological issues and they need help. That's what's so scary. And that's Mm -hmm. what people need to know is that if somebody that family members need to know, friends need to know that if somebody even says it once, I remember saying, you know, I feel like I'm being abused, but it was never physical. He never touched me, but he, you know, he would break things and I, I wasn't even sure. And I was so ashamed of even using the term abuse because I looked at his abuse as like, like black eyes and whatever broken bones and it's it's really really difficult even if you love somebody to believe the empath because empaths are so emotional i feel they're you know they wear their heart on their sleeve they're just so emotional that it's really easy to manipulate one's loved ones into convincing that it's them and that they're trying to help i mean i hear it all the time and that's a big one Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that, I mean, it had my mom convinced for a time and my mom is my rock and it had her convinced, definitely had my brother convinced. Yeah, that was rough. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Just the the power and control they have, you know, and they're so manipulative and convincing because of their charm. Yeah. That they can convince other people and even ourselves that we're crazy. I just wanted to say this is a major trigger warning again. I did want to say too that, um, and this is something I'm really ashamed about, and I'm being like totally candid about this. But so going back to the coworkers and going back to him feeling that he was, um, you know, that he was somehow a victim of his coworkers. And this is how bad narcissistic abuse is because you're convinced that everything is normal and okay. He would go around slashing his coworkers' tires. And oftentimes, actually, this was during moments when he would run out of marijuana. And one day he came in, he was wearing a black hoodie and he said, I did it. I slashed his tires. And at that point, I mean, I was in fight or flight, so I I didn't know what was up, what was down. So I said, what? He's like, he deserved it. I slashed his tires and I didn't even look at it as it was that bad. That's how bad it was. And I remember him saying who it was. I remember I was with Hunter, my son, and he was having just one of those psychotic moments. He was driving. I was always afraid of his driving, always afraid to be in the car with him, no matter what, even just up the street. But he said, I have to make a turn here. And I remember that specific turn. I'll never forget it. And he said, that's that asshole's house. Why does he have that? And I don't. And he parked the car. And he ran up somewhere. I got, I'm so ashamed of this. And I was frozen. Hunter was there and he slashed the dude's tires. I know exactly which house it was. And that's relevant for moving on, like during the divorce. That's a really, really relevant piece of the story. So he did those things and I, you know, he made it sound like they deserved it. No, right. I mean, they're always the victim and they have the right to be angry and seek revenge, but no one else does. Mm-hmm. You know, no. and no. I remember number two had such hatred for his parents and his mother was dying and he had already made up his mind that when she died, he would not go to her funeral. But he also told me one day, you know, if, if I were to go visit her, 
I would just have no problem walking in and just pulling the plug. And just the hatred. And mm -hmm. thankfully, I had I had come far enough to where I had a little bit of nerve within me. And I, I immediately called a sister and let her know that he had said that. And definitely when we were already divorced, his dad went into hospice care. And I called his sister then and said, if he comes to visit, you need to be present the entire time because I don't trust that he wouldn't do something absolutely horrible. And yeah, their capacity for revenge. Yeah. And then to boast about it. And I, I have no doubt that number two was silently vengeful against me and mm -hmm. other people too. So they're extremely scary individuals. And yeah. I'm so proud of you for breaking free for your children, but for yourself so right. that your kids get the best parts of you. Yeah. And don't ever feel ashamed for staying as long as you did because now your kids see you as a survivor. Yeah. And, and that's okay. And it's easy to look back and think you could have or should have. But the truth is we didn't. And that's okay. And we do the best we know how at the time. And so here you are, the best of yourself, right? And right. getting to be the best of yourself. And that's the best gift you can give your children in your students and in yourself. I wish we were closer. I would just give you a big hug because I'm so, so proud of you and so thankful that everything aligned the way it did with mm -hmm. your parents and your support system to get you to this point. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah, I think it's just your journey has been remarkable, truly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm really proud of myself too. I do. Yeah. I do Send you this kicked message. ass, girl. Thank you. you. I, I feel like I did, you know. Yeah. I do want this message to anybody that that is in a similar relationship, you know, or if, if they feel that they can relate to any of the stuff that we've talked about, is that to please document, mm -hmm. um, no matter what, please document everything. Don't be afraid to call the cops, you know. And and that was my mistake. Is in the beginning I didn't document. Um, I think that's a huge piece. You know, because I mean, it, it, they're just so charming. They're just so charming and so convincing that you will forget and you will think that think those things actually did happen. Mm -hmm. I, that's what happened to me is that I thought that my memories changed. And I really thought that it was me for a long time until I started journaling and documenting. I, I echo that 1000% because things escalated with number two to the point where I did have to call the police and apply for a protective order. And in the state of Texas, you can have a restraining order or a protective order. And a protective order is a bit stronger and it's good for a minimum of two years. And had I not had the documentation, I don't think I would have been able to be given the protective order. So documentation is very important and for the court system, but I think for us too, to be able to go back and look at what we suffered through and I'm just repulsed by some of the things that I lived through. Mm -hmm. It's hard to look back at that. But if I ever need a reminder, I have lots and lo lots of notes. And, and Tony, just a phone call away too, to remind me of just the incredible amount of BS that I lived through. But mm -hmm. documentation, extremely important. Even if you think in the moment, it's nothing. If you're thinking about it, it's something. And just jot yeah. it down, you know. Yeah. Jot, jot it down. Yeah. And, and hide it well. I made the mistake of, you know, just yeah. putting it or yeah. And then and those pages were ripped out. So hide it, hide it well, please hide it where nobody would ever look, where nobody would ever think, because I made the mistake of just putting it, you know, in a drawer underneath some other papers. And of course he found it. And the first time I had left, he had ripped out pages because, you know, he knew he, 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 he just, he, he found them and that was scary. And so I found an app and I'm sure there's a million apps now where it's password protected at the time. And I don't even know if it exists anymore, but it was called my secret journal. And I would jot down notes in there, um, very specific notes, but if they find it, they're going to try to destroy you. So that's, what's really scary is that if you do document, you really, really have to hide that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So. Mm -hmm. Google drive is amazing. If you just, you yeah. know, password protected. Yeah, just store it in the cloud and there's always a backup. Yeah, yeah, I think that I think that's really important is to, you know, somehow email it to yourself or have some sort of backup. 
if you have a trusted friend that you can send that to. to my parent. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I have a backup for sure. Yeah. If you can do it digitally, that's probably pretty good. I know that in notes with iPhone, those can be password protected. You know, you could even just label a note grocery store list and mm-hmm. have it below a list of things yeah. that you always buy at the grocery store. Yeah. Yeah. But yes, documentation vital. Mm-hmm. And calling the cops anytime you feel unsafe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank Let you her. so much, guys. This was really cathartic, like I said. It's oh, a- I'm so glad. I was yeah. hoping so. I know it's been painful. I know. I know. Pain- relive it. I, I just, it's been so long that I had just, I've forgotten a lot of that stuff. So I'm glad I wrote it down and, you know, was able to, um, hopefully, hopefully people know, you know, especially with that element of, you know, being touched. I just want people to know that it's their body, no matter what, no matter if you're married, if you have a boyfriend, girlfriend, that's, I think that's something super important, especially for younger people to mm-hmm. know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, Lily, you are so brave and we truly appreciate you talking about your story with us today, part of your story. And on the next episode, we will continue talking with you about how you found the courage to leave your marriage, what caused the scales to fall from your eyes, and you're going to discuss the court system and how you're continuing to keep your kids safe. Yeah. Thank you so much, you guys. I really, really appreciate this. Yeah, if I could just help one person, I'm really looking forward to speaking with you guys again and diving into more detail about, you know, how to save yourselves, your children. Mm -hmm. We really appreciate it so much. Yeah. So, yeah. So thank you all for joining us today. And we look forward to next time on Here's Here's Your Red Red Flag. Flag. Thanks, y'all. Thanks, y'all. Thanks, y'all. I flew up to the mirror. Here's Your Red Flag was written, directed, and recorded by Tony and Lisa and edited by Tony. Our theme song is Butterfly Woke by Jairus. If you enjoyed listening, please subscribe to our podcast. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, we would appreciate it if you would give us a five-star rating. Thanks, y'all. Butterfly woke, can I die?